Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast of informal and approachable conversations about big ideas in the realms of philosophy, religion, politics, psychology, and sociology. I am your host, Marshall McCready. Just so you know, this podcast may contain offensive language and mature content inappropriate for children. Hello there. Welcome to episode four of the Fighting Anime podcast. Today I bring you another book club meeting recording um, with my friends Mario, Micah, and Rom. We discuss lecture three of William James' series of lectures on pragmatism. Um, I will link the book that we're reading through uh, in the links. And uh, you don't have to have read the lectures to follow along. Um, we talk about all kinds of interesting things. We talk about the metaphysics of reality. What is reality? How do we know which reality of the options is the true reality? Uh, we talk about colors. What is the true color of an object? Can we know that? How can we know that? We talk about uh, the argument from design, uh, what it would mean if the world was designed by a designer, uh, does that have any implications? How do those implications differ for the past and for the future? And then at the end, uh, this is one of my favorite parts, we talk about the metaphysics of love. What does it mean to say uh, that we love someone and what does love entail? Um, and more. We kind of get into the weeds a little bit at one point about perceived reality versus uh, unperceived reality, uh, whatever that might mean. But I think it was a productive, um, a productive kind of getting into the weeds, and I hope you like it. Um, a couple of things before I start with the recording. The sound has been getting better, but it still needs to be improved. And I learn something every time I make a new recording. And this time I learned that I need to do something about my cats because they were running around and you will hear some jangling noises in the background. Those are the bell, uh, the bells on the cat's collars. So, uh, yeah, next time we will put them in another room. And also there's a couple kind of scuffle sounds. Hopefully those will be remedied in future episodes as well. I'm getting a, a boom mic so it will help with... Uh, anything kind of hitting the table uh, that the, micro the microphone was resting on, in the future it won't be on the table. So just thought I'd mention that as well. It'll, go it'll get better, but this episode's pretty good. Um, and lastly, I thought I'd start doing this thing where I would recommend a podcast that I heard uh, in the week preceding my uh, the podcast. And this week I thought I would recommend to everyone <clears throat> a podcast that recently aired on the Ezra Klein show, which is a podcast that I love and listen to a lot. It's primarily focused on politics, uh, demographic change, uh, social issues, things like that. Uh, Ezra Klein is the guy who started Vox Media. Uh, but he recently had this conversation with a writer for The New Yorker named Adam Gopnik. And I had never heard of Adam Gopnik before, but I instantly was um, enamored with how he spoke and his ideas. Uh, it's called An Enlightening, Frustrating Conversation on Liberalism. 
They talk about liberalism. They talk about what it means to be a liberal. How has liberalism changed over time, and what about it stays this, the same over time despite changing political landscapes and uh, eras? I would definitely recommend this podcast, and I'll have it linked in the show notes. All right, and that is all for now. I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, so I'm Marshall. Let's go over the guests. <laughs> What's up, Rob? My, my name is Rob. I'm back. This is Micah, part two. Uh, I'm FBI agent Michael Scarn. <laughs> Michael Scarn! <laughs> uh, this, this is Mario. My first time doing this. Yeah, so cards on the table. Uh, Mario walked in and I was like, Mario, where is your book? And he said, he has no book. So <laughs> it's, I'm glad he's here. We'll have to fill him in, I think, on, which is okay. I think I, all of this stuff, I think it'd be great to just yeah. talk about. Well, I mean, this is a good time to say that I did not read Lecture 4. And, and I struggled through lecture three. I think it'd be good to like reiterate when you go through like what he was saying because I, I mean, this doesn't really follow very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, see the impacts. Well, I read it, and I. It's also. I mean, I. I have trouble comprehending it too. I, I have trouble processing like models yeah. for the most part. Models. Yeah, like when I'm trying to get grasp like more of an idea rather than a narration mm-hmm. it's harder for me yeah. I definitely thought I thought they were both lectures were profound but I definitely thought that they were much denser than the first two particularly lecture three mm-hmm. that one was brutal uh, took me like two and a half hours to get through like okay. 20 yeah. pages or something yeah that's yeah. insane <laughs> yeah and these are short pages I mean this is a small book so uh, yeah I re- reread several sections just to make sure I was following um, some metaphysical problems you know <laughs> yeah some, some metaphysical problems pragmatically considered okay so right off the bat he starts talking about Oh my gosh, okay, so this is something that I was, I was thinking about the fact that we would be talking about it in the meeting. Yeah. And then I was thinking about, how it's so difficult to explain, and it was difficult for me to even understand what he was saying, but just like, um, what he's talking about in terms of the soul substance. So, Mario, Mm -hmm. what he's saying He's applying his pragmatism to metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And then one particular metaphysical construct that he's focusing on is um, the self, basically. Yeah. Um, it's just when it, this is, so he talks about it on page, I mean, it's kind of the whole lecture but he's oh yeah good so the word the phrase soul substance is on page 43 so so the, first of all the problem is the main problem that he's talking about is a problem of attributes of something versus that thing mm-hmm. what are things that have attributes what is the mm-hmm. substance of a thing and how do we know that a thing has a substance apart from its attributes mm-hmm. Something can be hard, or soft, or blue, or green, uh, or cold, or hot. 
but it's still a thing that is hot or is blue. How do we know that? What does that mean? And how do we classify whatever underlying reality that thing has, apart from its attributes that we sense and perceive? So I, I thought that I thought a good place to start this is, uh, would be talking about the metaphysical soul substance. So it took me a long time to kind of understand what he meant by this. And here's what I think he means. So first, let me just read his, he poses this question. Um, but first we have to establish what he means by a few words, I think. So he talks about consciousness and what he means by consciousness is, and let me find where he says it. Boom, 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 boom. I can't find it. But what he means by consciousness is being in an experience while remembering past experiences. So it has to do with memory and you having them and kind of bringing them to bear on your current experience and your future experience. I'll find where it says that at some point. Um, and so here, so here's something. So there is consciousness, but then there is the thing that is conscious over time. The thing that has consciousness over time. So like Mario, there's you right now, and you're conscious, and you. So you have this this collection of memories that you call you, basically. So there's there's something about you that is constant through time that has consciousness. Because yesterday, Mario was still Mario yesterday, and he was also conscious. So I think the metaphysical question is, what about Mario is the same from yesterday to today? Why is, the, why is that thing that I'm calling Mario yesterday the same thing that is conscious and that I'm calling Mario today? Well, uh, James says that the common answer is that there's a constant something uh, that is best described as a soul substance. The substance behind consciousness. That's the thing that stays constant. So, we have established consciousness and soul substance. So here's his question. It's on page 43. <clears throat> Suppose that God should take away the consciousness. Should we be any the better for having still the soul principle? And to kind of provide a more concrete uh, aspect of this question, he says, say someone comes up and says that he has the same soul substance as Nestor or Thericides, which are, I'm guessing, old Greek people who I should probably know about. <laughs> but so say, like, say I said, I have the same soul substance as Napoleon, but I don't have Napoleon's consciousness. So I have the thing that made Napoleon conscious, or that that possessed Napoleon's consciousness. I, had, I have Napoleon's soul substance, but I just don't have the consciousness that arose from Napoleon's soul substance. And I think, so James is asking, what would the difference be whether you had Napoleon's soul substance or not? And 
his point is, is there is no difference between me having his soul substance and not. The only thing that would make a difference is if I had his consciousness. And if I had his consciousness, he says, I would literally be Napoleon. There would be no difference between yeah. me and Napoleon. And the difference being, or what makes something a difference, is it is a um, definable, measurable, tangible impact on your experience and reality. Mm -hmm. So like the behind the scenes would be different, right? But if you can't tell and like your world of experience, then there is no difference. Yeah. Yeah, because his whole his whole thing is there. It, there is no difference unless there's a difference in experience. So it's kind of like someone saying, "I in a past life, I was a this, but then, but see, but they have no conscious awareness mm -hmm. of the experience of being that. So really, they're not saying anything of you of any use. It's a it's a meaningless question. Yeah. But and here's the interesting question is doesn't the fact that that doesn't mean anything to say I have Napoleon's soul substance have some implication for how we view ourselves over time? What would that implication be? Well, uh, this kind of is more like lecture four, but, mm. you know, we, I, think of, I don't think of myself, Marshall, as multiple Marshalls. Right. throughout my past life. I think of myself as one marshal moving through time. But I've changed. Mm -hmm. My personality, maybe, well, maybe not my personality, but my beliefs have changed. Yeah. You know, the way I view things have changed. All the little skin cells have changed. That's mm -hmm. another level of change. And what is the thing that m makes Marshall Marshall over time? Well, I think whatever answer we have would be something like this idea of soul substance. Mm -hmm. But that soul substance only seems to make any sense uh, within the same consciousness. It's the same thing as consciousness, I think. It becomes James' point. Because if you remove it from consciousness, uh, then it means nothing. Right. It seems to me that consciousness is... Like a, a slice of time, though, like a, a, a state of being at one particular instance, um, rather than over time. Or am I misunderstanding that? You know, what like, exactly does he mean by consciousness? I, I think, well, from what he says, I don't think he means consciousness colloquially. It seems that, like Marshall said, it was experience with past memory. Mm -hmm. um, that, that would make sense to me in his comparison with uh, the soul substance or the spiritual substance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. I'm trying to find... Oh, the, yeah. You know, I found it. And, well, sure, yeah, I can't find it. It was in, it's in the same paragraph as the, the previous quote you just mentioned. Okay, okay. Yeah, it says... Um, oh, yeah, to remember personal history. Yeah. Namely, the fact that in so much he says... It means, he says, so much consciousness, namely the fact that at one moment of life we remember other moments and feel them all as part of one in the same personal history. Hmm. Yeah, rationalism had explained this fact of continuity in our life by the unity of our soul substance. So that, okay. Which is kind of chipping away at the, the implications of like someone saying, oh, I was like X in a past life, right? 
like pragmatically speaking? What was difficult for me, and what is honestly still kind of difficult for me, is separating consciousness from soul substance. Yeah. I get why there's a distinction, because there has to be the thing that makes one, that makes consciousness at X moment um, have the same owner as consciousness at Y moment. Like, it's conceivable to think of every moment that we're conscious as different people or something like that. But yeah. it's like, why it, Why is the me that is conscious today the same me as the me that was conscious yesterday? Uh, there's some content, there's some element that is continuous through time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what he's calling the soul substance. Okay. And I, okay. No, go on. Well, it, to me, like, just hearing you talk about it, it kind of reminds me of, like, like mathematically... Yeah. Like a line is made up of like you know dots that are all like yeah. infinitely small, but like when they're all like together, it's a line. It's like consciousness is like each one of the like the, 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 small points, and it like the soul substance is <laughs> the line made up of it. Oh yeah, I I, I think exactly. What, what do you do? Um, I'm I work in operations here. Oh okay okay. I, I'm a physics major, so I, I think similarly. Okay. Um, how I thought about it was uh, like imagine like you have a line right, some exponential line. And then you're like, oh, but all of these points, they, it's different along, you know, there's no set path to this line. But then when you take, like, the integral, right, mm-hmm. it, it seems to, uh, you can make sense of that, like, uh, that difference. Yeah. Right? I don't know. That's, I don't that's know. cool. I like that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's funny that you said that. That's, I wrote down, I think what his fundamental question is, uh, is whether or not Pam have the same soul substance as Jim without having direct access to Jim's memories and experiences. In other words, without having Jim's consciousness. And otherwise, otherwise put, could Jim and Pam be the same person and not know it? No, no, this, this is me like, using uh, Jim and Pam. Oh, yeah, I was I, like, where are we? No, 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 I, I'm trying to make it more, I was trying to make it more concrete for myself, and I was thinking, like, what, what is he actually saying? And it's hard because we refer to, you know, in, like, oh, Jumanji, the new Jumanji movies, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and uh, the funny, what's his name? Jack Black. Kevin Hart. Uh, Hart? No? Jack Black, they're all funny, I guess, Kevin Hart. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so in that, in that, movie, people, we, we see Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but we know that it's actually so-and-so's consciousness. Like a different person who's playing. Oh, like, uh, like in the, like his... I mean, they, like, switch bodies, right? Yeah, they uh, become the... Oh, oh, you haven't seen it? Oh, well, I've seen the old one. I haven't seen the new one. Oh, okay. Uh, well, basically, it's like, if, um, what, what the scene, the, the scenario is, is there's these video game characters. Mm. Uh, but once you play the game, your consciousness is actually put into the body of one of the video game characters. So mm-hmm. right. uh, there's a girl, and she becomes Jack Black. Yeah. So, but she's she's herself in Jack Black's body, mm-hmm. and so the idea is that she's she Jack Black, Jack Black's physical body has her consciousness. But the question is, I think. Uh, and this is all for a broader point that we'll, we'll get to. But the question is, is, is she the same person when she is in Jack Buck's body? Because, okay, because so, we're aware that her consciousness has changed, but has her soul substance also 
gone into Jack Black's body? I mean, yeah. I think, yeah, that the body is just one attribute of the soul. So, like, a soul can be instantiated uh, in different vessels, and that's mm-hmm. a component of it. But what gives it life is the soul. Right, the right. soul substance. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I interpret it, too. Uh, especially with his uh, example with Nestor, it seems that he's speaking of soul substance as the, the driver to, like, the car of yeah. the body. Yeah. Uh, so, like, uh, what I think he was saying was, you know, you this the soul that drove Nestor after he departed from that car, he got in your body and started driving it, if I'm not mistaken. Wait, so let me hit you with James's question, which is, what difference would it make? Uh, I can't remember the girl's name in the movie. Let's call her Caroline. Caroline's soul substance and consciousness go into Jack Black. What practical difference would it make if only Caroline's consciousness went into Jack Black and not her soul substance and her consciousness? The, see, uh, when, when people say, okay, so going back to your example of like when people say, oh, I was a, I was, you know, person X in a former life. How I interpret that is that consciously they are themselves, their, you know, lived experience, but somehow unconsciously they're tied to this person and that brings like those experiences of whatever person they relate to in history, uh, those experiences that they know of them, they see in their own lives. Um, if that makes sense. So like, um, say for instance, someone might be like, oh, I was Steve Jobs in, in an earlier life, even though I, I was alive when he was alive. Um, but I, if they were to take that example, I would think of it to say like, oh, you know, he had uh, visionary tendencies and I have visionary tendencies that are like unconscious. But um, to answer the question, I mean, I guess that depends on, like I, for me, I don't see a, um, the, like, like uh, James says, there's no past experiences that you're relying on. So it makes no difference to me. Um, but I can see how some people can make the argument that the unconscious, like the soul substance, could make a difference. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I think, I don't know, okay, I'm kind of trying to follow. I'm a little confused about that. But mm-hmm. I think his point by posing this question, okay, so he starts off this whole lecture saying, hey, there's this really weird problem when you are trying to identify the underlying substance behind a collection of attributes. So for example, there's this table right here and the table is from Ikea and it's made of wood and it's brown and solid. Mm-hmm. Well, what is, the, what is the table that has the properties of solidity and brownness and Ikea-ness, you know? Well, ultimately, I could only um, describe it in more attributes. I could say it. It's the difficulty is is presumably there's something that the table is um, that has these properties. But the difficulty, I think that, and this is where the metaphysics comes into play, yeah. which is what is the table? 
you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think James's point, and um, he's using this, I think, very um, tangible feeling of consciousness and, a, and continuity over time as kind of a proxy for a general metaphysical argument. And I think his point fundamentally is that we it's really difficult to even think that there is something that we can be in touch with underlying the attributes. So yeah. with the, the Jack Black and uh, what was the name? Caroline. Oh, Caroline, I think it's <laughs> example. It makes no practical difference, I think James would say. Whether or not you said, A, mm-hmm. Caroline's consciousness has been instantiated in Jack Black's body, or B, Caroline's soul substance has been instantiated in Jack Black's body without the consciousness. Because if her soul substance was instantiated in Jack Black's body without the consciousness, he would still just be Jack Black. He wouldn't be Caroline. Because the only thing that makes him Caroline is the transfer of consciousness. And so in that scenario, it, it just isolates the kind of weird nothing that the soul substance becomes, even though there's a pretty reasonable argument to get to soul substance. It becomes, I think, and that reasonable argument being, what is the thing that attaches consciousness over time? And I think his point is that fundamentally this soul substance is an empty abstraction, a theoretical tool Mm -hmm. that we use to make sense of these things. Mm -hmm. But really, it's not actually there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to me, like when working through that example, that the soul substance is the energy of the consciousness, perhaps like the the fuel that makes the engine run kind of thing, where the consciousness is alive and active because there is the soul substance. Whereas if there wasn't soul substance, it doesn't make sense for there to be consciousness. It would be like a machine that's not turned on kind of thing. Well, in which case, doesn't doesn't um, soul substance kind of become subsumed under the idea of consciousness? In which it's a distinction without a difference: soul yeah. substance versus consciousness. You might as well just say consciousness. Yeah, or soul substance. Or, or <laughs> soul substance is kind of cooler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in the in the movie example, does Caroline still have her memory? Of being Caroline? Yeah, yeah. So like she, she so she goes into the game uh-huh. and she wakes up as Jack Black and she's like, Oh my god, I'm this fat man <laughs> or whatever. That's, and that's why the movie I thought it was pretty like yeah. it's that gimmick the whole movie, right? Yeah. With like the different characters, but it I thought it, it was retained its humor. Yeah. yeah. See, I that's interesting. Because I think in that case, it does make a difference, right? Because she keeps her experiences so it does make a difference well but wait remember the the question of the difference is whether it makes a difference whether we make the claim caroline's consciousness has transferred into jack black or caroline's consciousness and soul substance have transferred into jack black we don't add anything more when we say okay. and soul substance right right yes yeah. but, but the, yeah yeah okay yeah you're right you're right uh but if you were thinking of it from the frame of reference of Jack Black, you would say that, you know, he's he has the soul substance of Caroline. Well, I think we would right. say well, 
we would say there is no more Jack Black soul substance because well, it's been um, it's been replaced by Caroline's soul substance slash consciousness, which are the same. Do you, the, the fundamental point being, I think, that even though we can come to this, you know, kind of logically and rationally, perhaps this conclusion that there's something kind of like soul substance, mm-hmm. uh, it turns out that it's a distinction without a difference, and it just yeah. becomes a theoretical construct uh, that's useful for explaining something we maybe don't understand about consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I, I would agree with this point. You know, we actually we actually talked about this in a way without, and not in such depth, but the last meeting. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember, it just briefly came up where someone was talking about taking someone else's shoes and it came up where Ram Yutz said something like if I were them hmm. and I, I had their experiences then I would have the beliefs that they believe hmm. and then I said, Ram, if you had all of that you would literally be them yeah. there would be no difference yeah. between you in their shoes and them yeah. you would become ex- I, literally completely identical to the thing that they are in <laughs> yeah. which case there would be no comparing you and that thing anymore right right I mean that's a I, I lean more deterministic in that way uh, because I a little thought experiment that I like to run uh, just for like my sci-fi side mm-hmm. um, like imagine a world right uh, we, VR is becoming more of a reality and Black Mirror kind of fleshes the, the yeah. nightmares out. Yeah. Imagine one where uh, on the brighter side of things, say you had the DNA of someone and you can like, instead of going to school to read about the history of that person, mm-hmm. instead you like do an overnight like sleep, right? Like maybe it's a weekend long or whatever satisfies your sci-fi nature uh but you you go into like this simulation where you're just born as this person and you live out their lives and i mean this would only work in a deterministic world in the sense that you are them right and so you would learn about all the uh, choices they made but you would make exactly those choices because i mean obviously i i'm i lean more on the side of you know, whatever that person's nature plus nurture is, which um, means whatever. Well, you would be, by that, real quick, you, were, you would be saying everything that determined the outcome of that person's life would determine it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were determined. It just is you're rehashing everything that made things happen in the past. Right, right, which is okay. a bit deterministic. It's not uh, fully. It, I don't know. It's usually deterministic entails the determination of the future. But of course, the things that made the past happen made the past happen. It doesn't mean that in the future anything is determined by those same rules. But never mind, maybe it should go on, sorry. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's going <laughs> a bit deeper into the, the, the determination, uh, determinism field. But uh, the point is, is that, you know, you would, you would make all the choices that this person made, which uh, you would gather this experience. And when you come out of the simulation, you would have this visceral understanding of why and how that person lived. 
Mm-hmm. So, so you would be like suspended above watching yourself make the decisions and also making the decisions. Well, you would you would not be suspended above. You would like if imagine that you go on to do very historical things, right? Mm-hmm. Right now in your life. <laughs> I think it's often. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine after you've lived your life, you wake up and you go, oh, wow. So that's how who Micah was. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what I mean. And you wake up, I mean, you go in without any memory, but when you wake up, you have uh, gained that experience of that person. So you're, the only thing about that is what you would learn, I think, from that experience would be that person's experience of their experience and how they interpreted their actions, which would not be the same thing, I don't think, as really understanding them, because most people don't understand themselves. It's kind of like the thing of, is the best way to learn history through the historical subject, or is it best to detach the subject from the history? And kind of like what Micah said, kind of like take this historical aerial view and watch things happen. That's it, but I mean, if you wanted to understand what the experience of being like some great historical figure, that would be important. But the thing is, is it, are they experiencing the historical reality, which is a weird thing to think about in of itself, is that yeah. something? But is it the well, most objective way to well, look at history? I mean, what is the historical reality besides just all of the subjective experiences built and meshed together about like the, the real you know because like when you go back into history you're always looking at subjective experiences to try and piece together what the what actually happened yeah yeah uh, I mean I, I think I think I mean I, I don't think it hurts in some sense like I think I think your point is that you're not sober when you're experiencing if that like in, in some well, analogy right I get this is kind of a rabbit trail but like you know, <laughs> the, the, that's what we should call this podcast. <laughs> yeah, the Trail podcast. Uh, like the construction of history rests on some kind of narrative structure, you know, mm-hmm. and and so like in that narrative structure, looking back is probably like in elementary school. I learned about uh, you know native tribes, mm-hmm. and the the people of those native tribes believed in all kinds of strange native gods and stuff. And they had all these weird beliefs about things. Mm-hmm. But and but I don't learn about the history and the occurrences and the, you know, the wars or whatever of mm-hmm. their tribe through their lens. And in their mind, they might be thinking, oh, this happened because of this, you know, yeah. metaphysical thing or yeah. whatever. I learn the tribe went north and then the other people came and conquered them. And then like you, 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 the construction of history, I really don't think is the collection of subjective experiences. It's the, um, kind of interpretation based off of all of these axioms about it's the political history or it's the anthropological history. There was all these different levels of history. All of them are constructed based on their internal rules. Yeah, and most of them aren't based off of subject. A phenomenological history might be really interesting, like, and there is that, you know, well, like memoirs and autobiographies, yeah. and biographies. Well, I mean, yes, I, I agree with that. But I mean, how we have access to the, yeah. the, the history, though, is it, through because, like, for yeah, instance, yeah. like, uh, well, imagine like, like British history, right? 
like, I mean, think about British history, how British history is taught, and then, like, it, like growing up in India, how British history is taught. Uh, yeah. right? like, yeah. There's going to yeah. be two interpretations. Yeah. And I think... There's a difference. <laughs> there, there might be different emphasis. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think learning both would be ideal. But, yeah. I mean, growing up, I think, I don't think, like, you don't get ideal history. Like, there's not time to dive into all of the subjective interpretations, right? Yeah, it's just, it's just real history. Yeah. That's a cool thought experiment. Yeah, <laughs> Very, uh, what's that movie called where he goes in? Uh, oh man. Man, I'm trying to think. It's a really old movie that got remade. There, he goes. Total Recall? Total Recall. I don't know how you knew that. I gave no, no help to you. I was lost until you said they remade it. And then I was like, oh, this oh yeah, 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 Total Recall. That's a crazy movie to think about. Have you seen that show on Netflix, uh, Altered Carbon? No. I think that's what it's called. It's it's, good. It, it's kind of like Total Recall made into a TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of nudity. It's good. So here's what I think I, we should have started with at the very beginning before I launched into that thing about the cells, which is just the page one of the lectures. And, and I'm curious what, of lecture three, I'm curious what you guys think about this. That was good. Yeah, you, you thought it was good, Mario? <laughs> so, so he gives, I, I'm assuming, so he's, this is a, a transcript of a lecture, right? Yeah. So he's, people see him and he's able to do things and demonstrate. So it's, this is someone's experience of the lecture. The, the, of the words, I guess. Of it. <laughs> uh, so James is at the front and He's talking about a crayon. He says, here is a bit of blackboard crayon. And I'm I'm picturing him holding up a crayon in front of the people. He says, its modes, attributes, properties, accidents, or affectations. Use which term you will. So he's saying these are all the same words for different things. Attributes, I think, being the most commonly used and understood. Our whiteness. Friability, cylindrical shape, insolubility in water, etc., etc., etc. So his point is, here is all these descriptions we can make about this crayon, of its attributes. So skipping down a little bit, um, oh wait, wait, before that, he says, but the bearer of these attributes is so much chalk, which therefore is called the substance in which they inhere. So the substance of the crayon is chalk, and the chalk has the attribute of being white. It has, oh, so I guess, I guess a blackboard crayon is another word for chalk. I was literally picturing like a Crayola crayon, <laughs> but it must just be a piece of chalk. Yeah. Blackboard yeah. being a chalkboard. Like early 1900s, right? Yeah. yeah. So I guess they use, they use different words for it. But, so his point is the substance has the properties. Yeah. But here's where it gets really interesting. The substance in Every case is revealed through them, meaning the attributes. If we were to cut off from them, we should never expect its existence. So here's what he says. If God should keep sending them, the attributes, to us in an unchanged order. So what he means is, is if we were to continue to have the perceptions of the attributes of the crayon, 
white insolubility in water, etc. But these perceptions would be superficial, they'd be fictions put in our head by God. If God were to do that, if he were to continue to allow us or to, to make us perceive the chalk in the same way, but he miraculously, miraculously annihilated the substance that supported them, we should never detect the moment for our experiences themselves to be unaltered. So his point is, is substance itself, like we talked about with the trans, not trans, um, maybe transubstantiation because he talked about that, but the, the soul substance, yeah. the, what, the, the notion of substance itself, of the crayon, is not something that we can actually detect. It seems to be a theory. Yeah. Um, because he's saying it, it becomes the substance of crayon becomes just like the substance of consciousness in the sense that we can imagine perceiving all of the same attributes with the substance underlying them being changed without noticing the difference. Yeah. So do you get you following? Yeah, I mean, like, what is the difference, though? Or what is a substance if not just the collision of all its attributes? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's not a normal... That, I don't think that that's a, um, a common sense notion, what you're saying. Like, I, I'm holding this cup here. It, is it not a cup that is yellow? Yes. Well, under your definition, it would be more accurate for me to say it is... The fact that it is yellow, the fact that it is shaped the way it is and solid, makes it a cup. That the the mm. it goes from attributes to substance. What you're saying, but most people think of substance then attributes. It's a uh, cup. This the underlying substance of a cup is I don't know what what is this yeah. glass? It's glass that is shaped as X that has the color of X. But really, there is no underlying thing that has attributes. There is only the perception of attributes. So, like, this is kind of like <clears throat> the, the the argument or the debate over uh, the definition of like the sandwich. I don't know where I heard that from. But it's <laughs> it's a, it's a hot dog a sandwich. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and so <laughs> when when people define it, it's through. Uh, their use of a sandwich, right? Oh, I made a sandwich last Tuesday, and this is what it was, right? And then they define that. Mm -hmm. And so, or is that what you're getting at? Like a bowl and a cup, like how do you differentiate those things? How, it's differentiated through its use, right? Which I think we talked about last time. We did. I don't yeah. think, so James, I think he's, I don't know, I, I think he's going to make that point in a later lecture. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think he's just working to kind of get us to doubt our fundamental notion yeah. of substance. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, this is a huge thing that he's saying, I think. It's huge. Mm -hmm. It really just, it implodes <laughs> our common sense ideas. Uh, I think what it really does, most fundamentally, is it tells us that reality as we're perceiving it is not how we instinctually or intuitively understand it to be. The table has no empirically verifiable underlying substance about it. It just is a mm. collection of perceptions that I have. 
Interesting. But it is still something that I'm perceiving, but I'm not really in touch with that something. Yeah, and later, later on, he, uh, this is an interesting thing, because later on he talks about, uh, I think in lecture four, about uh, this kind of like, uh, about pluralism, right? Mm-hmm. And the one thing with both this and that, can't you go to a more, uh, like a materialistic view and say like, oh, but all of these uh, substances, right, uh, material substances, they have, uh, we can look deeper into them and learn more about them. Like at like atomically, right? And when we learn more about them and its atomic nature, its arrangement in its atomic nature determines uh, more macroscopic level uh, properties, right? So, so take the cup. Okay. So I think is what you're saying is if we want to know about the substance of the cup, i.e., the glass. What we should do is take out a microscope and analyze, or whatever mm-hmm. you do to analyze the atomic structure of something. <laughs> <laughs> is it a microscope? I don't know. It's the electron like, microscope. There I we guess. go. Yeah. That's what I meant. And look at it that way. But yeah. see, but I think that just begs the question, which is, are you not still just describing attributes? What makes, what is now the fundamental substance? Is it the glass? Or is it that which holds the atoms together? Mm -hmm. In in which case, what would differentiate that atom from the atom in the air next to the cup? How do you solidify cup as opposed to other atoms? Yeah, I mean, it seems that 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 is the endeavor of science, is to, to classify different materials until their underlying most basic properties until they can no longer be reduced like the, the whole yeah I mean it, there is the problem of like I guess levels is the thing it's like I mean like for instance you would never like it would be impractical to go at the field of economics with like some like principle about quantum mechanics, right? Like it, it wouldn't make sense. Um, in the same way that you wouldn't describe a cup in in a like in a in a materialistic oh that's made out of ceramic and this is ceramic's molecular structure. Like that doesn't. I mean, it gives you more knowledge. Um, and the only way I can connect what. Uh, uh, what James is saying is uh, like through its, I guess its pragmatic function. What difference does it make that the substance uh, we call a cup is a cup, right? And it's it's because of our of our experience of use, which maybe I'm misinterpreting. No, no, I think well, I think you're exactly right, and I think you're answering Marika's question, which is that science is is fun. Well, most sciences, I would say are fundamentally pragmatic. They're, yeah. they're based off of things that we're, we experience as human beings. Uh, and then they talk about those, dis- those experiences in greater detail. But they do, just by doing that, they take for granted 
the existence of things. And so, for example, um, the economics, mm-hmm. the study of, you know, supply and demand, all of these different principles, right? Are they studying things? Are they concerned about whether the things that they're studying have an underlying substance? Or do they just take for granted the existence of a particular kind of unit? I think they take it for granted. Or widget. I see. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the dollar or the widget or the whatever. Uh, the market. The market. Mm-hmm. These things, they're not asking a fundamental philosophical question. They're asking an, an essentially pragmatic question, which is how can I predict the future? And what are the rules that, that work pragmatically to predict the future? Right. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental nature of science. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not getting in touch with reality. It's describing our experience of reality yeah. such that we can make it predictable. What right. works. But what what works. Is the, what's the difference between how we colloquially use reality and this perceived sense of modeling reality? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just wrote a little blog post about that. I read it. You read it? Yeah. Um, Well, the the difference... Here's the problem. The problem is, is that we know that what I think colloquially we describe reality is derived from our perceptual structures our meaning human physiology and biology. Mm-hmm. So in my blog post, I use blue. So is there anything blue? There's some blue in the screen. Oh, it's gone. That was bad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> blue. Blue is blue because of our perceptual structures in our eyes. The cones and the rods are arranged such that that thing, whatever it is, if it is something, it appears blue. But there's a bird... Birds, there are birds who have um, a wider ultraviolet um, spectrum in their eyes and they see, they see more colors, so to speak, than we do. Yeah. And it's not blue. What's reality? Is reality the blue that we're seeing or is it the color that the birds perceive the thing that is blue to us? Or the thir- a third animal or a fourth? Or is it... And this is just a very totally disconnected, detached idea from our experience. Is it the thing of how it looks when no one is looking at it? That's another idea of reality. Yeah, it's like the reality is the wavelength. Like, say it's what four hundred nanometers or whatever is is the wavelength for this this light that's being reflected from this this substance. But a bird would interpret that more specifically than we. So maybe like the range from 400 to 300 nanometers is blue, but they is like 300 to 325 for them is a certain shade and then a different shade and a different shade. Mm-hmm. So like the reality is the frequency of the light, the wavelength. Interesting. So wait, that's what Ram said when we were talking about it. And my response to him, because y'all, y'all are both very engineering, I think. Electrical engineering? Yeah. Okay. Are we engineering that too? No, I was biology. Oh, interesting. Close. But so, <laughs> Micah, um, if, what we're talking about is blue. Yes. Which is the perception of a color. Yes. Is that the same thing as a wavelength? 
Because if you say color becomes wavelength, then I have... What are the, the, the colors? It's the experience of the wavelength. Blue is the experience of the wavelength. And, right, wait, but, and then the, but the experience varies from bird to man to whatever. Let's have a bird come up here and argue with me. Yeah. <laughs> Blue is the correct well, what, what if, okay, okay, say for instance, I mean, we've developed some tools like uh, infrared sensors, right, to like widen our experience in some sense through these tools um say one day we get uh the ability to have like neural connections so like like technology can interface with us purely so how would like if we were able to either genetically or mechanically uh increase our experience of these things like say we like someone was blind we we know we can People have had eyes transplanted, right? I believe. Well, but Ram, you're so. This is the impulse, I think, mm. for people. I'm not calling it battery. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, go for it. But the response to the ambiguity, I think, of the situation of the difference between perceived reality and whatever the other version of reality is, mm. to make it more concrete, to make it where we can point to something and go, "That's the real thing." We put it, we atomize it. We make, we make scientific reductions, which is to say, oh, what color really is, is wavelength. But that, it, I see it as a moving the thing that we were previously talking about to a different category, such that it completely changes the nature of the thing. So like blue is, is, is an experience. And if you say blue is wavelength, you have completely and utterly redefined what blue is, such that it won't even be recognizable to us. Well, the the, the interesting thing about what you're saying is like, I I agree that it is, in a sense, a different topic. And the only way, like my, my, my instinct is to be like, is to go to wavelength, right? Like... You're like, oh, well, this is like some reflection of light, and that's the information of light that's going into your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I do agree with you is that experience is like very vital. Uh, from, like, say for instance, like drinking coffee, right? I think your experience is like really, really important. And we, like, for instance, you might be like, why is this, like, I had this coffee, why is it so amazing? And uh, you realize, like, you, you know, you might, you can get a batch of that coffee and, like, uh, like go back home and be like, okay, I've done experiments, it's uh, acetic, just by a little, and it has three, these three very crucial components that make it this, this elegant, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it might not be that. And it, this is very telling in like the food service industry, where a lot of the experience is not purely through the food, but it's through like customer service or like how uh, we see the food or mm. how we we conceptual yes yeah, yeah, yeah. and like all of these things. It, it, so, for instance, that one restaurant you went to on your vacation wasn't so good 
because you know they they were they just know their food, but rather they know how to uh, craft an experience. And it might to the locals that restaurant might be just terrible, but you went there and you had an amazing time because of your experience of this mm-hmm. larger context of you being on vacation, mm-hmm. right? So that I do agree with you that like maybe when someone talks about blue. It might be like it's their quote-unquote favorite color because it uh, the, it brings up these other related experiences, um, and to reduce it to wavelength might be uh, too reductionist. To lack of better words, I, I see what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I think what the point that I'm really trying to emphasize here is even more revolutionary in this so here's what i mean so have you heard of these experiment experiments where someone's like oh i can taste the difference between coke and pepsi and then someone gives them they, they put in front of them a coke bottle and a pepsi bottle but really coke is in both and they taste it and they're like oh yeah no this one's pepsi this one's coke or they get some the the expect the the you know the labels on the bottles create an expectation like what you're saying yeah and that influences our even our taste of the object right uh, or of the liquid but I, I totally grant that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and like if I were to have that done to me and say I thought they were, one was Coke and one was Pepsi, mm-hmm. and then they told me, hey, no, actually we put Coke in both of these bottles, mm-hmm. then I would reframe my, my belief. I'd be like, oh, that's weird. I, now I know that they're the same. Right. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. But what I'm saying is even deeper, Okay. which is if you're asking the question, what is the real taste of this liquid? What is the reality of the taste of this liquid? It's another way of asking, what color is this thing really? This thing looks like blue, this thing tastes like Pepsi, but what is the reality of what it looks like or tastes like? What's the color that it really has? Taste is even, is, it, it's, not, I don't think, as good as color, because I think we often think of color as being maybe a little more objective than taste. Um, but it, the point is that is our perception of it is so human. It's so contextualized within our own physiology that to even think about reality as being something that a bird or someone else tastes it draws such a distinction between perceived reality and reality. And I don't even, I can't even imagine what reality apart from perceived reality would be, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I still recognize that what I'm calling reality is totally filtered through my personal experience and subjective interpretation of things. So that's why it's even more, so like the neural network thing, even if we were to make a neural network where people who, Oh, oh, okay, and, and somehow be completely no. You know that like thing that you're talking about, how in, in elementary school everyone's like, what if the blue I'm experiencing is a different blue than the one you're experiencing? We're just both calling it blue. Like, what if somehow we knew for certain that we were all using the same word colors to describe the same experiences of color? So I just knew for certain, Rum, that the blue you were calling blue is the same blue that I'm calling blue. Does that mean that the blue object actually is blue? 
or that it actually is whatever color that the bird perceives it. It becomes a question of reality becomes something that is just a preference, an arbitrary taste, so to speak, an aesthetic that you prefer of, oh, I want reality to be the one that I perceive, or I want reality to be the one that the bird perceives. But there's no way of going about determining which is the truest or the realest reality. It's purely arbitrary. I think it depends on how precise you're trying to be about the question. Like, what do you mean by the true, the, by the true reality? Well, the point, the ultimate pragmatist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the, the problem I have, okay. So, say for instance, there's like, we've all ran across these on the internet where it's like. Stare into the middle of the screen while like these like this object moves, right? Yeah. And like you like and then when it drifts away or like when that whatever impact is to be made mm-hmm. uh, is made, you see this thing like it's a false color or a false perception. And but we can we can reliably state through measurement that it's not, right? And so. In that case, our visceral experience differs from what we can testably conclude reality is. Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say in those instances? Well, how, to, to even have a method of testing what reality truly is, you have already had to define what reality is. What are your grounds? What, what results was so that? That's the thing. That's that's why the wavelength is reality because it's the common, it's the overlap between the two experiences, where you have this bird seeing this color of shade of blue, and you have us seeing a shade of blue. What is the true blue? Um, the thing that is the same in both of those situations is the wave. Oh, the cats, <laughs> they're just playing. Annabelle, please. But you don't know, uh, but the, so, wait, so my only question about that is, is don't you need to have the information of what the bird calls blue? No, you don't need to, you don't need to know how the bird is ex- experiencing blue, and if that experience is the same as our, or my particular experience. What makes the wavelength more real? It doesn't make it more real in, in, the, in the sense of experience, right? Like visceral experience, it doesn't make it more real, but in, in the sense of wanting to know, um, oh man, all of these words have like two different meanings is the problem. I, I want to say truth, but yeah. then I'm, I'm using truth as in uh, some model uh, that can predictably... Uh, you know, predict um, what will happen. That's what I would say would be the truth I'm using, which I understand yeah. does have a different meaning when we go into, uh, obviously, pragmatism as a wholly different truth. Uh, but th- that's what I tend towards. I mean, this kind of, what you said, what we agree on, what the overlapping experience, especially, I think that's the great endeavor of science, is to find out what is, is uh, what does overlap and what is the subject of experience. Right? Do you, so two things. One, do you not 
think you know see the, the agree with me about to to say blue is not our perception of blue it is these wavelengths is to make a sort of category error how so well it, so that's that's the question I think that's that's the ambiguity in the question when you're saying what is true about blue right if what you mean is what is the actual experience you should be experiencing when you see blue or what is that's one part of the question that I think is understood and then there's another part of what is this blueness that retains the blueness apart from whoever is experiencing it that is not subjective okay so you see, you see what I mean? say so say we there was an, I had an object that we all completely 100% agreed was fully blue mm-hmm. and we asked the question uh, what color is this really and we had a bird come in and look at it and the bird could talk <laughs> and the bird said guys this color it's actually or whatever yeah. he, he has some special bird word for <laughs> some color that we can't even see yeah. we, we literally can't even perceive yeah. uh, right, right. you know uh, how would you adjudicate the true color of the object well I mean that, that's the, would, the, the the bird would be able to speak more precisely about it yeah. more pre- why is his any more precise than ours it, it depends on the measurement so it's the same thing. Uh, say, I'm measuring this table here, and I'm saying, okay, we need to make we need to make four legs, and I've got a meter stick that only has meters, or, and, or centimeters rather, mm-hmm. and Mario here only has um, a really uh, fine precision tool that measures in millimeters, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to say it's ten centimeters or whatever. And Mario says, no, it's 100 millimeters, right? Or he'll say it's 101.7 millimeters because he's mm-hmm. more precise. So which is the true? But is color perceived in that way? Like, we're, I'm saying, it's, it, well, let's just say the bird sees it as purple and we see it as blue. It's not a, there doesn't seem to be so much a clear distinction of refined measurement there. And it's just a fundamental difference in kind. I don't know, but what about color colors? So that's the thing, yeah, that's right. what wavelength is defined. That's why I'm going back to wavelength, because it's the same, it is the, like literally the way the right, well, light reflects off the object and the, um, yeah, it, it's the, the wavelength, the, you know, the, the distance of one cycle is what defines what color is. Oh, right, but that doesn't, it, but I agree. Yeah. And our perception of the way, how the wavelengths are filtered through our eyes give us, but the wavelengths are filtered through our eyes one way and the wavelengths are filtered through the bird's eyes another way. Yeah. Who gets to say what the true color of the object is? Well, I mean, you could take this to a testable thing with like colorblind people, right? So like, what if you hid messages in those, uh, sorry, do you have a whiteboard? Do you want something? I don't. It's like smushed on my wall. But he has his yeah. ad tablet. Yeah. I don't want to something. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, but like with colorblind people, um, what are those tests called? I'm blanking. I actually probably don't even remember the name of them. I don't remember either, but... But do you I guys know what I'm talking about? about? Well, how do they go? Do you ever have that in chemistry? It's like the circle. Yeah. It's it, like a circle made up of a bunch of other circles with like kind of similar color. Yeah. 
I don't know what it's uh, called. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and, you, and if you can tell what they're different. Yeah, and there, there's usually like some letter or number in there to mm-hmm. see, to test if you're, if you can see or not. Yeah. And, oh, yes. Like, yeah, okay, I've yeah. seen those. Yeah, and so like, in that sense, wouldn't you say someone is colorblind and someone is not? And therefore someone is more refined in their color seeking than uh, the person that is not able to do so, right? Like, that person is missing out on information and other people are not. But, I mean, it's still just a question of the colorblind person still sees a color of an object. It just doesn't, they just don't see the color you see. But, but it doesn't change the color of the object. Like, but how do you determine the true color of the object? I mean, I think in, in the sense with color, like, I think, you know, what we're talking about with wavelength and such, like, there are, like, scientific and, like, kind of quantifiable measures of, like, the color and such. Okay, right. so wait, no, no, let's push that through. Sure. So, say you measured the, the wavelengths of the cup, and even though you knew that the bird and Ron and a colorblind person would all interpret those wavelengths differently, what is the correct way to filter the wavelengths such that you see the true color? Um, to make it super scientific, there, there actually are like chemical ways you can do it where you can like kind of... Um, but how would you know how to set the parameters? How would you go, oh, ah, the true person sees yeah. this band of wavelengths? I see. I see what you mean. It, you're... it just pushes the question back, yeah. I think. Well, it pushes the question yeah. back, right? But doesn't all that matter? The, 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 the frame of reference is determined, determined by the, the perspectives involved, right? So, like... Between me and the colorblind person, they're like, there's this symbol. And so, uh, and the person I'm talking to might not agree with that. But through my experience and their experience coupled, we can come out with, oh, well, there is this symbol, right? But, and to ask what the true color is, there, there, there might always be something that pushes that frame of reference out. Like, for instance, a bird comes in and they're like... You guys are both wrong. Right. There's a third or a second symbol hidden within that symbol, um, which we're colorblind to. And this might be true, but it, I don't think it, it I think it, the frame of reference matters. And there's no sense of uh, making that frame of reference infinite because that <laughs> that sense of infinite is like, truly impossible to get to, right? I think I think I completely agree with you, which is that my whole point, I'm kind of being kind of in cheek when I'm asking these questions. I don't think there you can possibly come up with a way to ground what would be truly the real color of an object. Because even because the perception of color is contingent upon the onlooker. And who how on earth would you go about deciding which onlooker had the the most accurate perception of the color. You would be your parameter would be already yeah. a color. Right, right, right. right. In, in which case, how would you? I think with this, I love this thought experiment with the color blue because mm-hmm. I think it just so it so it isolates the fact that there 
is no real conceivable true reality. There is only multiple realities uh, and then some kind of an arbitrary taste aesthetic that you have for which one you think is best. But really, there's no way to go about determining that. Well, I mean, well, if you... different perceptions of reality does not mean different reality. Yeah. Because, like, so I, I keep thinking this example in my head, which is why I'm laughing a little bit. Okay. In the background. <laughs> like, do, do you have wings, Marshall? No wings. Not yet. Okay. Gotcha. But if you started to perceive, if nothing about you... Anatomically and physiologically changed, but you started perceiving that you had wings. <laughs> that wouldn't yeah, mean that like, you had wings. <laughs> and if you tried to fly, like, or you, you, know, you try to jump off the top of this building, because you perceived that you had wings, you would just die. No, true, true. Yeah. That would not be a very good perception. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'll finish, finish my picture. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll have to take a screenshot of this, oh, this is great. and so, link it for everyone. This is blue. It's black, but it's blue. So the, wait, so wait. Is what you're pointing to the object? Yeah, here is the object. And you're saying the object in reality is blue? Well, this is an object of undefined characteristic. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> we don't know what it is. This is a wavelength. The bird sees it. The wavelength is X, the light reflecting off the object. And to the, the bird, bird thinks that's Y. Okay. This is y sub B is the bird. Y color. Yeah. Um, to the bird. The person sees it, it's the wavelength, the light, the way it reflects is also X. The person perceives it as Y. So A, you know. So as a, as a different color? Um, perhaps, maybe. Yes. Okay. What you're asking is what is the true color of the object? I don't think you're asking what is this. You're asking what is this. So I'm not asking what is their what is the interpreted perception of the object. You're asking what is the object itself. Well, if you and redefine color as wavelength, then yes. But wait, wait. But, but how much you... color is wavelength? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Well, you've defined it as wavelength. Yes, but I mean, why? Why should it be defined any other way? I'm just saying every day when I go about seeing colors, I am not when I say the book is red. I'm not thinking about wavelengths. I'm not perceiving yeah. wavelengths. I mean, we, we had the, the argument there would be we've had uh, the concept of colors before we knew of its more finer attributes, right? Well, and then I think we could, based on the information of, if we did an experiment where we had a thousand people mm -hmm. choose between four different slides, one is 250 nanometers of wavelength, one is 500, 1,000, 2,000, and say red, green, blue, purple. And all of them are correct except for one person flips them and says, no, that one's this, that one's that. We would say, okay, buddy, sorry. No, yeah. That's wrong. Wait, so... There's a uniformity across everyone. Yeah. So it's a social construction. Wait, Micah, let me hit you with this. Say, so I agree with you, so objects have wavelengths, and the wavelengths are filtered through our optical well, structures, and we, yeah. we filter the wavelengths in a way. We don't, we're not in touch with the wavelengths exactly, but we're in touch with our interpretation of the wavelengths. Say our visual structures, the things that are perceiving wavelengths, made it such that everything is monochromatic. Everything is the same color. Yeah. Would color exist? Would blue exist if everything that we perceived was black and white? Would blue exist? 
I'm not knowledgeable of human experience. Right. But what, but where would blue exist if not with with people that had the perspective? Would it that difference? But if no one perceived the color blue, would blue exist? No. But not the, conceptually. But the wavelengths would be the same. Right. Regardless of whether we perceive them as black or blue. Yeah, and so imagine uh, an alien race, right? And they saw in a different spectrum than us, slightly shifted one way or another, and they had different colors. Um, that, that, that conception, like if, if we were to meet uh, between civilizations and they had these concepts of colors and ironically they spoke English and had the same colors. <laughs> to be ironic. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, of course they wouldn't. But the, the point is, is like, if they were to say like, this is blue and we were like, no, that's, that's like nothing. That's literally something we can't see. That's infrared, right? Or whatever. Uh, the question is, is like, oh, but that color always, did that color always exist? Because they thought of it concurrently as we were coming up as uh, intelligent entities. Um, I, I think that it's dependent on experience and frame of reference, right? No, I totally, it, but the, my point is just, I don't think, but as I don't you, think as we're you, all on board with it. So say there, if there's a sound that no one can hear, is it a sound? It, no one can hear it. No, is I, it a sound? Right, right. I, I agree with you that conceptually, it's not a sound viscerally to us, right? Well, it depends but it on what you mean by sound. Right. Uh, the, the, but the, here's the thing is, is literally our idea of color, our idea of sound is fundamentally human. And it is, it, 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 it's our perception of a sound that makes it exist. If there's a sound right now that I can't, that no human being can possibly hear, I don't think it constitutes what we typically mean by the word sound. Yeah, well, it's a, okay, one point. And you could define it as like a, a wavelength. What if we had a instrument where we can measure that sound? And we don't experience the sound as we do other sounds, but we see it as a needle moving on this machine. Does it then exist? What do you think? Yes. Yes? Yeah, so I think it can exist. Things exist apart from us being able to experience them as mm -hmm. such. Which is more real? It having a sound or it... Well, like, so then it becomes <laughs> a sound with no sound. <laughs> no, I, I understand yeah. what you mean. Like, it's not... <laughs> It's yeah. not visceral, right? It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not a primary experience. You're yeah. like. It's like the reading of history. It's you don't know that these things happened, but you have trust in the tools of academic historians that these things happened the way that they did, in the in the way that we uh, have faith that uh, you know some uh, tool like a like a meter stick works, right? Uh, or maybe something digital might be more, uh, you know, more tangible. But <clears throat> but in each in, in each uh, a scenario, it depends on the frame of reference, right? Well, so Rom, you're you're yes, it totally, and that's what James is saying. Right. But I don't think that's what Mike is saying, and that's okay. But I think so. I think what Mike, what you're Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Mm. But I think what you're saying is what. Where what constitutes a sound okay. depends on, of course, your definition of a sound. 
And what you say a true sound is will, of course, depend on what you mean by true and by sound. Yeah. And there is, and that's it. There, but you're not in touch with any reality. What you're calling a true sound is purely a product of your defining it into existence. But that just means that it's our interpretation of reality again. Yeah. And it's not us actually knowing anything truly about reality. It's just, it's pragmatic. It's a theory of calling something something X thing right. so that we can talk about it again in the future or something. But, but isn't, yeah. isn't, that the, isn't that what we colloquially mean as truth and reality? Like, is it perceived reality the only reality we know? And to be sober in that reality is to know that whatever this absolute reality is, we are only getting bits of information from. So you're correct in the sense that uh, our experiential reality is all we have. So you could go into like solipsism, right? Like hard solipsism in the mm -hmm. sense of your brain in a vat and all that you've experienced and those perspective of others are meaningless. Everything that you thought of is is materially is false. Yeah, no, okay, I think I think this is the where we're getting caught up is I think our understanding of reality is just like what you said, where if you mean reality to be this thing that actually is apart from our perception. Like, that's okay, but that's over here. It's virtually unassailable. So the only tools we have are our perception. Mm -hmm. So therefore, what we're interpreting and measuring and using these words to define is reality, regardless of it as actually reality. Like, these two things yeah, yeah. could be different or not, and we would have no way of knowing because we only have the tools available to us. Yeah. Wait, it's included in that is the wavelength detector is that a part of perception yes by by perception i don't just mean like our senses but i also mean like the whole of uh other people's experience and yeah. scientific advancement and things like that because if i you know see this color i'm like oh it's purple and someone's like yeah dude that's definitely blue so I'm not, I've done that because I'm color deficient. <laughs> so oh, this is kind of, kind of a funny conversation to have. I actually see colors differently than most people. Or some, some shades. I've been confused. Um, but if I were to have an interpretation of an experience that varies from many other people, I'd say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not actually reality. But why are they not wrong? Um, because... Well, I mean, it's a democracy. Color is a democracy. goddammit. I wouldn't say that because what if, what if one person was not colorblind and ninety nine percent people were, and one person was like, "That's a that's actually purple," and everyone else is like, "No, dude, it's that's blue." Yeah, I think it goes back to being the, the functional definition. Yeah. If if the one person sees the true and the ninety nine percent see mm -hmm. the not true, it's just what we mean by the true is what the majority sees uh, and what the majority yeah. experiences. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay, okay. But <laughs> in, in, even then, let's see. And even then, it's only true insofar forth that it is the, the majority's opinion. But even that definition of truth of the color is totally contingent upon human perception of it. It's still... Yeah. It's still not apart from human experience. It's totally contextualized. 
So even within human experience, even though it's the majority's experience, and you had a different one. So, so your point in in saying that James was uh, a bit more radical with this is that uh, people took that as like like the sense that we were like sensing absolute reality, and he was kind of like buffering that. Yeah, and this um, totally so wrong. The meetup thing that we went to last week. The the Bible study. The Bible study. Oh, yeah. The man. <clears throat> oh my God. There was this guy, and he told me he we, he was like Marshall. Do you believe in absolutes? He asked me that explicitly, and I was like, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know if there's an absolute because all I know, I felt like. Here's what he was asking me. He was asking me, do you believe that there are things that exist of outside the realm of your experience? And that's a question that I don't think you can answer. Mm. And so he asked me, Marshall, mm. so he, these people at this meetup that we went to are the very type of people that James is, is fed up with in the sense that they are absolutist metaphysicians. They are... They are the, the most absolute of rationalists. The man comes to me and he says, this table, Marshall, don't you agree that it is absolutely true that this table exists? It yeah. exists metaphysically. Mm-hmm. And the whole point, I think, that James is making is, is you, you are in no position to make claims about some kind of absolute reality uh, apart from your experience, you have to be content with understanding the table, what you mean by the table, as purely your experience of the table. Yeah. There's, you can't get out of that. And there's no, there's no grounds on which to make the claim that the table exists in some other fashion apart from your experience of it. Well, do you, do you mean your experience or the aggregate of human experience? As though it could be those... Sorry, I didn't get that. No, you're good. Wait, wait. Could what do you mean be... by aggregate? Um, because to say that like, I'm not sure if that table exists because of just my perception versus I'm making this claim that I believe to be objective because by objective I mean it's the same experience for everyone else in the world. They mean if everyone, what they meant is the true absolutist metaphysical claim, which is if every human being on earth were to die, and every human being in the entire universe were to die. Yeah. This would still be a table that exists. Yeah. But the thing is, is, is we've only picked this object and categorized it out of the mass of all of the other objects in the landscape of the world and identified it and categorized it and interpreted it and understood it as table due to our human perception of it. And there might be a little ant that's walking on the earth and it crawls up on the table, and it would not call... It, it, it dies before it reaches the end of the table. Yeah. It's like the blind man and the elephant. Yeah. It doesn't even recognize it as a separate thing from the floor. Yeah, well, so that's the, the... Going back to the picture, then, so if everyone were to die, then the object itself would remain, but our interpretation of it would fade away. Well, but even the... To call it the object... Yes. Is to cap like what? Why is it table and not? Why is it not one leg of the table an object and the top an object? I'm just saying, even in our description of the table as one singular object distinct from other objects, mm-hmm. is already onboarding our 
interpretation of it. Right. And the only way to verify whether the mm -hmm. table would still exist if all humans were to die, but the only way to verify whether it would still exist in the way that we mean existence and what we mean when we say table is to bring a human back to life and look at it. <laughs> Which just shows that our the very most fundamental thing of the table is a human conception, fundamentally. And when someone asks you, would this be what it is if it weren't experienced by humans? And what they mean by it is something experienced by humans. I, you just can't go there. You don't know. Or you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, like, with the... Like, if aliens came, right? Um, and human humanity is extinct, right? Um, and they saw this table. Uh, it would... Their... The, the concept, tables would not exist anymore in the sense that they wouldn't look at a table and go, oh, that's something we put cups on. They might not even use cups. They might not even need the use of tables. Imagine if there were uh, some, some life form that was very radically different in the sense of their experience than ours. Maybe they didn't need to sit. Maybe they didn't need to use objects and such. Um, and so... Maybe. I mean, I agree with you in that sense, right? Is that what you're kind of going at? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. okay. So, did you want to say something? Yeah. That's yeah. Oh, um, yeah, the thought. Yes. Yeah, my, my question earlier, whenever you were saying how, like, J James was is, is saying, like, what grounds do these people say, like, things are absolutely on, like, what, basically the verse, like, what is, what is James's ground in saying that they're, like, they're not absolute? And that things... Well, I think it's... I don't think that he's... Oh, because, of course, the... Uh, Ram, you, I think you commented this on my blog and on Facebook. To say that there are no absolutes is in and of itself an absolute. But that's... See, but here, most people, when they... What they mean when they say that there is no absolutes... And James doesn't say there are no absolutes. It, and what James is saying is, I think, what most people especially in this kind of, you know, it's typically kind of an apologetic debate setting where someone says, there are no absolutes, and then the Christian dude is like, oh, but th that's an absolute boom, boom, roasted. Um, <laughs> is uh, what people mean is they say, we can't know yeah. right. if there's an absolute. It's, it's, it's exactly like the agnosticism versus Gnostic atheism, right? The claim that you know there is no God is much different than uh, saying that you're you're agnostic to yeah. the that question because it's just as unfalsifiable. Right, is mm. in one hundred percent as unfalsifiable as the claim that there is a God. Right, yeah. you you would you would have to know one way. So, but so like what I, I think what James is saying is is it could it could very well be the case that that guy at that meetup was right and. And it's hard to even comprehend what that it would even mean. What, what does it even mean that he would be right about the absolute existence of the table? But say he is, yeah. on what grounds does he have to make that claim? Yeah. So the well, way that I understand this is if the table... So go back, back to the table. <laughs> Gather on the table, y'all. <laughs> we have our perception of the table and the way we understand it and our cognitive interpretation of what it means to be a table is this human structure that is based on our experience, right? Mm -hmm. So if humans were to wipe away and fade and but the table remains, the table, 
and this alien race comes and observes the structure and they think, huh, that is a balloon. <laughs> it would be, I think what is happening is the same thing as if I jump on a plane and go to Africa and see a lion. I'm like, oh, that's a lion. And then some dude there is like, nah, that's a whatever they call lions. I'm not sure. What is, what is that? The, I don't know. It would just be the, it would, the language for using it, the description might be sound different, but the object itself would remain. Does, yeah. does that make sense? I agree with that. So, Do you think that you agree with that? I, I think Do you so think that's we, what James is saying? No, well, James is not, not saying is that. not saying That's different because he, in this instance, I, I don't need, we don't need to have ex- human experience in the mix. I'm saying there's, there's this this object that remains outside of our experience yeah. and we can still speak about it in a way that makes sense. It's, just, it's the same way as two different languages can say different things but mean the same thing because there's this overlapping reality, the structure underneath our interpretation of it. Yeah, uh, but wait. I mean, I totally agree with you that languages can have different things. Yes. Uh, what's a... What, uh, all <laughs> every single word in Spanish that I knew just left my brain <laughs> just this very second and I okay gacho is cat so gacho, gacho and cat are both these strange noises that we utter that yeah. uh, represent the same object of yes. cat yeah, yeah. okay but cat the object in question mm. cat as we understand the object yeah. So this is the this is the concept underneath the word because words aren't aren't just sounds they're concepts. Yeah. Right. And we can concepts of course can go by different sounds. And uh, humans, whether you speak Spanish or English or Chinese, um, we all have the same concept more or less yeah. of the cat. We actually have different concepts of different things. Yeah. If you speak different languages, which is interesting. But cat is something we all have an experience of. Yep. Would an alien have the same experience of the cat such that it would constitute the same object? Or would a cat be a completely different object in the alien's understanding? That's the question. It, it, would, it would be different, right? It's conceivable that it could be, right? Yeah, at least it could be. In, in the sense of the emotions, as we understand emotions surrounding this thing. I don't yeah. know, oh, it's purring, it's cute, it's bad, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Those could be, you know, I think vary as they vary across people. But the unifying characteristics of what makes it a cat, it has fur, it has whiskers, it's got a tail, it's got four legs. That would be the same in this new alien language, alien interpretation. Because... The unifying characteristics of the object do not change from our humics, regardless of the, the unifying characteristics of the object do not change whether or not a human is observing it or not. Okay, but what if these aliens have they have a flipped perception where what is uh, soft to us is hard to them, what is blue to us is red to them. Yeah. What sounds cute to us sounds horrific to them. Right. They're what they would mean, the entire meaning of the word, I as in the concept cat, 
would yeah. be just fun, like completely opposite. Yeah. But what we mean by cat. So definitely. But the the structure of the object would be the same, but the interpretation of it would be different. Potentially, because imagine uh, the alien race was uh, like either they perceived reality in one or one less dimension than us, right? In that case, it, I, I, could, I could foresee that um, that alien race is like, it, your perception of an object, uh, we agree because we are the same race of species, uh, but for this hypothetical race, uh, depending on how they developed and uh, their evolutionary track to um, perceiving reality, it might be the, 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 the overlapping experience might be so completely separate that we, it would be completely separate. Mm-hmm. But it could be the case that they're a little overlapping or majoritively overlapping. Um, but the same could be said about human experience, right? Exactly. So yeah. here's a good, I think here's a good analogy. So if you pour like a thick oil into a glass and then you pour water in a glass, I think, if it's not true, just pretend that is, I'm pretty sure that the oil will form a barrier with the water such that the water, they won't mix. The water will be on top of the oil. Mm-hmm. So when we, or the oil on top of the water. Yeah, oil on top of the oil. Okay. Y'all yeah, know more about that than Probably I guess. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mentos and, no. Okay, so we're looking at the cup mm-hmm. and we're perceiving two separate objects, oil, water, or two different fluids, but they're two different fluids, yeah. okay? And they're different in consistency, uh, they're different in color, um, they're different in taste, uh, that's what makes them different. Uh, the only reason we interpret what is in the cup as two separate objects is due to our perception of the attributes of each. So we perceive olive oil. We perceive the attributes of olive oil. That's the only reason it exists to us. The only reason that olive oil is in the glass is because we perceive it as different than water. Okay? What if you had an alien come in and that alien doesn't perceive olive oil as different than water? For whatever reason, the the consistency, color, and taste of olive oil are identical to water for the alien. Mm-hmm. And the alien comes in and it sees the glass. Yeah. Yeah. In the alien's world, a, a, a bucket, or a bucket, a, a bottle of olive oil is a bottle of water. There is no practical difference to them between water and olive oil. Yeah. Does the object of olive oil have a continuity a substantive continuity across the experience of our um, our understanding of what's in the, the glass and the alien's understanding of what's in the glass. I would say no. I would say the object ceases to exist in a sense, in, in a critical sense. I would probably disagree because I mean, the, nothing about the object has changed. It's about like the the interpreter has changed. It's it's two different interpretations of this now. But and nothing has changed about the object itself. 
I know it in a sense, yes, but what the thing that you're calling the object, the only reason you're even identifying it as a thing to call an object is due to the very sense perceptions that you have of it. And mm -hmm. if I were to somehow wipe away your sense perceptions of it, would it still be an object different from the water? No. But, no, it wouldn't. But the, the problem with the prior example is that uh, with the alien and the human, you're presupposing that the, there is that differentiation, right? Wait, in which example? The, with the alien not knowing the difference between water and the oil, uh -huh. you're presupposing that there is that difference because of our experience, right? So say, for instance, that cup of um, latte, maybe cold brew. Um, awesome, good choice. Uh, it, was, it was actually, there was this like mysterious substance that we cannot detect, but 250 years from now, we're very able to detect, and that's the source of cancer, right? <laughs> Critical source. Uh, we, we do not know that because of our conceptions or uh, our experience and thus our conceptions that we know now. But in the future, when it is detectable, whether it is by an alien race or our own, um, it, it, it does not necessitate that you know it, it came to exist at that moment, but it had always existed, right? And so, if that race ceases to exist, that con that perception is still there, right? Um, Wait, so Ron, say every human died this very instant, would that, would it ever exist? Would it ever exist? My fundamental point is that the existence of the object is a theory, a theory constructed based off of perceptions of attributes of the thing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I, the, the only reason an object is something, an object is an object, is because we perceive its attributes. Yeah. And if we didn't perceive its attributes, it doesn't exist in a very rare, real sense. No, I, I agree with what you're saying, but the problem is, is that this is exactly the problem of hard solipsism. Well, it's like, a, you don't know anything is real except <laughs> your experience. Let's think about this. So we, this is a very colorful room. There's lots of very pretty pictures in here, and there's plants. If everyone on Earth went blind tomorrow, would color cease to be a thing? In your definition, yes. We would lose that information, that access to it. Mm -hmm. And so there, therefore, there would be no color property to objects because we don't experience them. Right. Uh, what we're saying is nothing has changed about the objects, so therefore there are still some things that are purple, even though we don't understand them as purple any longer. But they would all... They would be purple if we were such that we could perceive purple. But we. But they. But they don't. But we don't know if they are truly purple, because whether the color of something depends on the onlooker. True. So now we're just an onlooker who can't perceive purple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we're saying. Like we don't. Yes, we can't perceive it any longer. Like I could know this pillow is white, and then I go blind, and then you could switch all these pillows. I wouldn't know which one's which, but. The object itself would still retain its whiteness. It would retain some... But remember, the only reason you're calling it white is because your 
perceptual structures are interpreting the wavelength as white doesn't necessarily mean that the pillow itself truly, apart from your experience, has the property of white. Because white is something we perceive into it. But it does have some intrinsic properties. So like even like with like a colorblind person, like even though they might perceive it as a different color, like enough again, nothing about the object itself has changed. It still has had like these same properties. It's the perceiver that has now changed. Right, right, right. But I think color uh, exists at the level of the perceiver. Yeah. At least with, at least one de- I certainly see y'all's definition. At least one definition of color. Yeah. I think the definition that describes the experience is most real to us. What we mean by color, what's most real to us, the sky is blue. As we go through the day, the things we think of as colors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree because I mean like it's not as if we uh, it's not as if we like when we found out the nanometer, uh, like the attribute of color, we were like, ah, oh, yes, this more profound like yeah. experience of color. Rather, we had a a different understanding, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what you're getting at? If we were to make a new object, mm-hmm. if we were to like make a car that had it was like a totally new car, yeah. Would that be a thing that um, we would make it into existence? What? But it would. It, it the what I'm trying to say is like it would only exist as something new mm-hmm. uh, because it has new attributes to it. What? Not because it's an entirely new thing. The attribute, the new attributes, every time you add on to a car, mm-hmm. you could say that you would make it a new thing or something. Yeah. But you're, it's because it's, you're adding attributes to it. I think we've kind of worn down yeah, this I was, point. I was yeah. thinking. Let's move on. <laughs> I think you're probably going to head out. It's, oh, it's you're going to head out? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it was good talking to you, Mario. It was good talking to you. Yeah, it was good to meet you. You should come next time. Yes. Grab this book. It's on Amazon for cheap. Also, the, the pragmatism lectures are on audiobook, yeah. Oh, yeah, he posted a YouTube link oh, to him. Yeah. Cool. Very helpful. Yeah. Right. yeah. See y'all. See you, Mario. See, See you later. I would like to talk about this. Is difference between whether or not the world is designed or... Is that designed or evolved? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Materialism versus... Spiritualism, I think. Yeah. Anthropism. I think... It is. He kind of. Well, first I want to understand his point. Um, which I don't think I really. Is that before did. or after the free will thing? It's before. it's before. Yeah, it's right before. He breaks it down to basically saying that, like, there is no consequence of either theory. So if we if it's evolved. Okay, if it's designed, okay, if it's designed, it's only helpful if we know what the intentions and the purpose of the designer is. It's on uh, page 46 and 47 when he's talking about the, the, how we, we know of the past. So he says the pragmatist on 46, in the middle of the page, it says uh, at the end of the paragraph, 
does the pragmatist must consequently say that the two theories, in spite of their different sounding names, mean exactly the same thing and that the dispute is purely verbal. I, I am supposing, of course, that the theories have been equally successful in their explanations of what is. Yeah, so he's talking about there are two people and they both come up to you with a very successful and moving argument. One of them says the world is not designed. Mm -hmm. It just uh, occurs due to kind of cosmic adaptation and evolution. And the other kind of in a Darwinian kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and the other person is saying everything is designed by God. James is saying, what's the practical difference uh, between these two things? Although, wait, it, just to be clear, he's talking about a past, a, a world that has ended, right? Isn't that where he was talking about the world that has ended? Well, he's, I, I, from what I thought, he, I thought he was talking, he, at first he talks about, uh, yeah, yeah, it makes no, not a single jot of difference, page 45, um, so far as the past of the world goes, whether yes. we deem it to been the work of matter or whether we think a divine spirit was its author. So but I think he goes into the future implications. Yeah, and he's saying, he says it doesn't matter for the past, but it really does matter for the future. Yes. Yeah, so, so t say we, say that there was the entire history of the world. Okay, say the world, did, world ended right this very second. And there's literally no future for anyone on Earth. Yeah. We, there's no future. There's nothing going. It's ended. It, everything is ended. Well, so say we were to look at the timeline of everything that has occurred. Mm -hmm. Well, we would still interpret the events that occurred as being good or bad or being, that was a nice thing. Or we would, we would still have our same understanding of each individual event, regardless of whether matter or physical laws made them happen or whether God made them happen. I disagree on that. Yeah. Because I think... I think if you can look back at a life experience and understand how it prepared you for a certain future experience, it gives it much more meaning than if not. So for example, you go through a really hard time and you learn how to navigate a particularly difficult relationship and you're like, why did that suck? Like, I don't wish that on anyone. And then 20 years later, you have a friend going through the situation and you can empathize with them and tell them, like, look, this is how it went when I went through this. Um, this is what you can expect, you know, give them some advice. Mm -hmm. And you're, like, almost glad that you were able to have that experience and share it with him. Right. So then... If, you, if the world ended before that conversation with your friend took place, that would be a different perspective on the previous experience, on the past event, than if the world ended after your conversation with your friend took place. And I think it would matter between those two, like if the world was designed or if it wasn't, because in the first sense, um, if before you have your conversation with your friend, you don't think that event had any meaning other than this just sucks. But if there is a God, then like he had no reason for this. But in the second one, you can think of, oh, like, this is the reason that God made this happen to me so I could share this with my friend and save him the pain of doing this. Or, you know, pass on advice to him. Mm. So I think... I think you're saying exactly what James is saying. 
Like, I think you're echoing completely his argument. Really? Yeah. Well, well in the it, future sense, I think, right? Well, in, I think everything. Because, mm. uh, so, in his thought experiment, there are no alternative options. There is no possibilities that we know of in the future of future conversations. Uh, there, yeah. And it's not just your life, it's the course of all of human existence. So the Holocaust, you know, the, the Civil War, all yeah. of these things. And it ends right now. So, But we have plenty of story arcs. We have plenty of people who we can look at and we can go, oh, this person had this. So we, we could look at someone in like 1600 yeah. and we go, oh, he had this conversation. But look, it prepared, he, oh no, he had this terrible event happen in his life. He was yeah. like persecuted. But look, that propped him up for success in this thing. So we could still do that. The yeah. only places that we wouldn't be able to do it are incredibly, incredibly recent events. But we would still have the entire scope of human history to make those judgments. And I think James's fundamental point is whether physical laws made those things happen or whether God made them happen, either way, Joe in 1600 had an experience that prepared him for his future experience. And we can look at that course of events and go, that's pretty cool for Joe that it worked out for him. Yeah. And we can either go... Wow, the physical laws are so amazing. Matter is so amazing to make this happen. Or we could go, Wow, God is so amazing to make this happen. Either way, it's an amazing event. Does it really matter what cost it? Well, the the difference being one of the questions that everyone has is whether or not God is real and God is good. But it doesn't that isn't that only do you think that if the universe ended, would that question be as pressing for you? Yeah. Because doesn't it only matter for the future of your life? This is at least what James is saying. Yeah, I mean, he goes, I think he goes well, on to say... So, I mean, that's kind of a... A question that doesn't make sense then, because when we think about matters for me, that implies a future tense. Because mm-hmm. uh, if, if there is no future, well, nothing matters, you know? Yeah. Um, Wait, but could you... Nothing matters for your life, but would you still interpret past... Here, here's what he means. Here, I, I did a star because he's. This is yeah. a great analogy. He says, "When a play is once over and the curtain drawn, you really make it no better by claiming an illustrious genius for its author. Yeah. Just as you make it no worse by calling him a common hack. The play happened, and it was either a good play or a shitty play. Yeah. And it doesn't matter really the character of its author. The play stands alone." And then, so, yes. he, so why wouldn't the, why wouldn't all of history stand alone? Um, why would it matter whether history was designed or by a creator or designed by the physical laws? Doesn't it only, doesn't that question only have any import if there is a future? Because we are trying to answer the question of whether or not there is a God, whether or not there is eternal life. But that is good. But if the if history has ended, there's no eternal life. There's no moving forward anywhere. Well, then that's answering the question by the premise. The question being, for human experience, why this is important is because we don't know whether there's an afterlife. We don't know whether there is a God and it's good. We don't know these things. So, um, but there, but those are only important questions to answer if we have a future. That, I think right. we're saying the same thing. Right. 
there's only a mattering at all for our personal life. Not for history. History is a very different thing. But for our personal life, if yes. there is a future. I if my if there's no chance that I'm going to heaven or hell or hell, there's no there's no tomorrow. And I know for sure my experience is just going to end. Yeah. The, those questions do not become pressing. They become totally insignificant. Right, yeah. But then the thought experiment breaks down for me because that's just like, okay, assuming naturalism, assuming there is no afterlife, assuming there is no God, yeah. does it matter for the history of the world whether or not there was a God or there everything was evolutionary speaking, just materialistic, you know? Well, no, but that his point is within that scope, I think, is within what you're saying. His point, I think, is just to convey the fact that mattering requires future. Right. That's it. I don't think... Like, yeah, okay. I think he's just trying to isolate that one point. Yeah. And, and I think his one point is to say, we only really care about these questions because we have a tomorrow. Yeah. And if there was only yesterday... It wouldn't matter. And it so wouldn't matter that we would just look at the... This is his secondary point, I think, is that to say design, it there's no content in design mm. because we there's no content in terms of is the designer, the playwriter, is he a genius or a hack? What matters is the play. What matters is the content of yesterday, not who designed yesterday. Yeah. So that those questions... They weirdly the the pressing need to have a designer, it so is so disproportionately significant, and it, it's starting tomorrow. Yeah. Well, it, so yeah, so then I would agree. That it's only important if we have a tomorrow, right? Yeah, definitely. And we do have a tomorrow, so it's important. <laughs> oh yeah, well, and that, and James goes on to say exactly that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he he sides on the side of spiritualism. It seems to me. He says it has a pragmatic import in that it has a promise for tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the scriptural, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, let me see here. What did y'all think about... Uh, so, I he loves to do this. So he says, um, treat it as it often is, the question... So this is the question of spiritualism or materialism or naturalism. Uh, becomes a little more of a conflict, a conflict between aesthetic preferences. Matter is gross, coarse, crass, muddy, while spirit is pure, elevated, and noble. And since it is consonant with the dignity of the universe to give it privacy, a uh, primacy in it to appear what, in it to what appears superior, spirit must be affirmed as the ruling principle. I've had conversations with religious people, mm. and I've said, you know, love is love. And it's amazing in of itself. Mm. Why do you need to establish the existence of God to have love? Because I, if you heard this argument, it's very simplistic, and it comes from I think kind of simplistic interlocutors. But the, they say if there is no God, love is just chemicals. But the thing is, is is no the experience of love and all of its wonder remains regardless mm -hmm. what you attribute it to, whether it comes from what you're calling chemicals, or whether it comes from God, it is love is still love, and it retains all of its wonder. It's it, it's the very wonder that you're having up that comes from the experience of love in and of itself, 
that is leading you to want to attribute it to something right. great. Something great yeah. But so the, the, the experience of love precedes your post hoc theoretical understanding yep. of it. But that's not their that's not their fundamental belief. They think that God precedes fundamental emotion and like actually all knowledge. Right? My point is just that he also makes the makes some remarks about how um, people have this thing, and I've experienced this, where they don't like to refer to things that are so wonderful in purely materialistic terms. If you talk to them about evolution mm-hmm. or something, they're like, no, that evolution is... They literally, I mean, like, people say these words coarse, gross, crass, muddy. Yeah. They say it, it defiles yeah. the beauty of love. So here's yeah. one thing, one reason, I would say. Because love is a shared experience, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think there is a difference between like you meeting, falling in love, marrying Aliona, and like the love that exists in that relationship mm-hmm. versus you hundred years from now sit down in a chair, have this VR, and you have chemicals fired in your brain that make it feel as if you meet and marry and fall in love with this Aliona that does not exist, that she's actually just a digital representation of this being, but you have the same emotional response, you have mm-hmm. the same chemicals. Are those two situations, is love the same? <sighs> if the object of your love exists or does not exist? That is a very difficult, that's a metaphysics question. Yeah. I would say, uh, gosh, (laughs) I I would say no, because like what you started with, love is a relation Mm -hmm. and you have to have a relation too. And if if I'm just having experiences, I'm not relating to, I'm just experiencing. So Uh that's why you disagree. Yeah. Oh. How, how would uh, how would you know that the experience you have now with this Aliona is real? How do you know it is not such case? I think our experiences well, no. are <laughs> literally every like the the only way you've defined that is it's kind of like begging the question because you've already said like think of a world in which you go into a simulation and experience this. Wait, wait, in that scenario, don't we have the knowledge? Do we have the knowledge that we're going into a simulation? Because that makes a big difference. Is yeah. If I'm in a simulation right oh, now, yeah. and I'm... Well, you can go in a simulation within a simulation, but, like, so in your example, is your question, Marshall, if I were to hand you this magical device, and you were to know that you could hit a button, and it would make you have these experiences by yourself in the corner... Would you call that love? I would say no. But I think, Ron, what you're saying is is maybe you're flipping the, the, the thought experiment where even what I'm calling me not in a simulation, I'm still in a simulation because right. I'm in the Matrix. Yeah, because you're, uh, I mean, your experience is all you know. But you have to admit, Ron, mm-hmm. that there's a big difference between me existing in the Matrix my entire life mm-hmm. and me walking into a deeper Matrix yeah. while I'm already in the Matrix. Right, right. But... Uh, are you saying, well, first, uh, which one were you saying? Like, do you have the knowledge of the uh, fakeness? No. 
No, I would say my initial thought is no, you do not know if it's a simulation. You shoot me with a dart while I'm not looking and I have these experiences. Well, I mean, it's kind of like dreams, right? Yeah. Are we experiencing love in dreams? I would say yes. Right? I mean, like, if in that situation, that's all you know. I mean, sometimes you do know you're in a dream, which kind of uh, blurs the line, but I mean, quite honestly, like, think about this um, very viscerally. Like, you, tomorrow, somehow, your VR headset runs out and you wake up from the, the life experience of Marshall and Micah and you're like, holy shit, what, what was going on? You have, I mean, you have no, that's like indefinable, right? And so if you were to do that in this reality, if you were to go in, it would be the same as you experience this reality. Well, but there, it's, there's still the matter of the definitions of you, you don't, if you really define, say we're in the matrix right now. Right. Even if we're in the matrix. Yeah. I could define love as a relation uh, held between two entities within the matrix. Yeah, yeah. And if I were in the matrix and then I were... Uh, so but in, the question assumes that I am aware that right. even in the future when I'm unaware uh, that I'm being having this dream. Yeah. Um, so in that case, I would say I'm not having a relation. But in the dream, I would not know that I wasn't having a relation. Right, but then it, you're, the, the problem with that is that you're forced to assume that you're not having a relationship with Aliona right now. Because it could be the case that we're in a simulation. Well, but that doesn't mean... that It could be the case, but that even if I'm in a simulation... Well, but why does it force me to conclude that? Couldn't I just hold that it's a possibility that, right. that I'm in the Matrix? It's a possibility, but... Okay, so I don't understand the importance of, it, of there being a simulation or not. <laughs> okay, so if you if you can okay, if say for instance you can put on a VR headset right now and you would forget everything, you would be born and you fall in love with this digital character, purely made up, purely something that your computer has generated, um, like in her or something. Seen her? No. Oh, the the, the robot. Yeah, I, I've yeah. seen commercials, yeah, not yeah. the movie. Uh, but imagine that was the case, right? And but in that simulation, you had the visceral experiences of falling in love with this person, and you wake up. Would you call that love or not? I think you would not call that love because of your knowledge that it was a simulation. But in that simulation, you would wholeheartedly call that love. Yeah, no, right. I agree. Okay, 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 yeah. yeah. So, but the thing is, the question mm. is whether there was actually love or not. Yeah, but the... the so the, you can have the chemicals yeah. without there being the love. Well, we because, can take it even further. Say there is a love injection or a love drug, a pill that you can take okay. that makes you feel, the, that makes you have the same love chemicals uh, that you have when you're truly, so to speak, <laughs> in a love relationship. Sure. Or ju uh, just an injection or a pill. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you, the thing is, is I don't see why you have to believe in God to refuse to define love as chemicals. In other words, I don't see why um, 
you, the choices are either you believe in a god that made love, or you believe love is just chemicals. Why are those the only two options? Well, I don't think I don't think it gets you all the way to God, but I think it gets you to this metaphysical reality of love. I think um, it shows that there is this this spiritual reality, this thing that cannot be reduced to chemicals that exist that you are in a relationship with. That is a product of a relationship of two people called love. That is not just um, these certain chemicals in, in your brain. It's this something that's ethereal. Uh, so, so, okay, okay. So, wait, Matt, what? the yeah. difference is, so in this hypothetical simulation that we could get into in our lives, and then we get out and have love, um, those are different in love. How? Wait, what? Like, okay, so we get into a simulation, right? And yes. we fall in love, quote-unquote, with some made-up digital person. But we think, full, full-heartedly think, because we have no other knowledge that we're falling in love. But then we wake up. We are aware that that was a simulation. This person does not exist. But then we go on to fall in love uh, uh, similarly. Yeah. Are those two loves different? And how? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would I would say that the one that is in the simulation, like, our experience of it, could be comparable to that as being in love. Okay. But love mm-hmm. does not exist because what I mean by love is this this property or this reality that's independent of the two people that they enter into. So it has to be two, it has to be two entities. Well, I mean, the object and the, the person and I guess the object of the, the thing okay. that they love. Yeah. Assuming it's a person, but I guess you could love a guitar, you could love a motorcycle. Wait, so Mike, I'm going to press you on this a little bit. Yeah. Why, what is love? if not a description of behavior. You know, I, I hear couples, married couples who've been married for a long time. Mm-hmm. They say, first the torch is really hot, you know, and you're in this honeymoon period. Yeah. But then, true love, they say, yeah. happens once that, that overwhelming feeling of love dies down and you're really forced to care for the person, which is to say, to act in a sacrificial manner over time, which is a description of behavior. Yeah. And I don't see why... Okay, but interest. here's a really important note. Behavior is not chemical. The What we call behavior is interactions between different people. Is an interaction a chemical phenomenon? I don't... It's something different. It's a description it's of behavior. Level. Yeah, yeah, which is a, it's a metaphysical thing, for sure, yeah. in the sense that, or, or it's an abstract categorization, yeah. Yeah. right? And that it doesn't have to be metaphysical. It, it could be metaphysical in that kind of abstract yeah. sense where it, sure. it would go away if everyone were to die. <laughs> uh, but why must it mean some kind of third uh, spiritual reality apart from the physical and the mental? Like, when I mean a relation... Uh, In order to have a relation, you can't just be sitting on your couch. There has to be behavior 
towards something. So like you can you can really I was just listening to this podcast with Alison Gopnik on the Ezra Klein show. It's Adam Gopnik's sister. Are you kidding? There's some ultra prolific Jewish family where like there's like six siblings and they're all like amazing. What does she do? People. She's a psychologist and philosopher, and she's a professor. She went to uh, Cambridge or Oxford, one of those. I get those mixed up sometimes. You know, she's just awesome, and she's written these books on parenting. But she talks all about how love is care. Yeah. And that's what I was talking to you yesterday, yes. Micah. If you want to be loved by more people, you have to let yourself be a burden, so to speak. You have to let people care for you, and then they will love you. Like when you when you tend to your garden, she 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 used this example of the garden. You love the garden because you care for the garden. Yeah. And you know, uh, even in a we, you brought up Gran Torino the other day that movie. <laughs> he comes to love that boy in the mm. movie because he becomes a caring figure for the boy. Yeah. And and he's forced to care before the love arises. Interesting. Yeah. If you want to love something, take responsibility for it. Start yeah. to care for it. Yeah. That is love. I don't see why it, it requires... And the thing is, is, is so that's love as a relational, relational sense. Mm-hmm. And then you could describe the experience of that relation, which is a different thing. that People people use the word love to represent yeah. those different things. And they're very different things that people yeah. love to acknowledge that. But that experience of love, mm-hmm. it only exists if the behavior is in place. It's after or during. Um, and and that you could describe as chemical, but the chemical then is contingent upon other chemicals beforehand that weren't love but were instead care-based, in which case what is love if you're going to define it chemically? I don't know. It's not a good... I don't think it's a great way to define it. Yeah, yeah I mean, in, in, in that sense, in certain scenarios, it can be placed that, uh, that those chemical properties are an emergent thing from your your narrative that you put yourself in, right? So, like... Hmm. Um, I am a husband. Right. I feel this role. Right, right, right. I mean, like, mm-hmm. you might have this... Uh, you know, the, the whole, like, <laughs> girl in a movie that's a nerd, she takes off her sunglasses. Oh, my God, my soulmate was in front of me the whole time. Look at all these experiences that were laid <laughs> forth. Yeah. I care about this person. Um, I um, love. I think that... Yeah. I think I'm going to have to, like, wrestle with this question for a little bit because that's, that's a really good question. Um, but my first thought is, what is metaphysical about love is the transcendent nature of love and that you're not just caring for someone. It's not just just this singular moment of experience where you have these butterflies yeah, or whatnot. Yeah. You are projecting a reality and a hope with another person yeah. um, beyond this particular point in time. And um, it's, it's beyond yourself and outside yourself and that's interesting because I mean when you say you you hope for the future right yeah isn't that why like if you reframe it with Marshall's diction isn't that why you would care for something like love is something in which you're engaged in the opposite of love to me is not hate right it's apathy yeah right yeah is that how 
Well, the, it's the opposite of apathy in a psychological sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because those are two different words for feeling strongly about. And yeah, yeah. You, you often go, like in those rom-coms, where the two people, they just like are arguing all the time. And they're, they're getting, they have a strong relation to each other. And so think of love and hate as a circle. It's a circle. They're not at other ends of a spectrum. Right, right, right. They're at close, they're at close, it's like a magnet. And the two, like a classical magnet, one of those red magnets, and the two end points are love and hate. They're not right. far apart, like what you're saying. Yeah. But that's, I think, if you're going to define it in a kind of a more behavioral sense, mm-hmm. maybe they are opposites because they have different relational outcomes. It depends. Well, it depends. Yeah, yeah. It depends on how you mean hate. Hate could mean, uh, hate could mean like you want it to stop existing, or you could mean in the sense of like reform. Like you, you I mean, growing up, you might like, I, oh my god, I hate you guys. Like concerning your parents, but then when you mature, you're like, oh, that tough love was it, what you perceived mm-hmm. as hate was actually uh, them caring for you. That makes, yeah, you know, I, I might be, yeah. I agree with you. The, the people who you often find yourself hating the most are the people you love the most. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're the ones who get under your skin because their opinions care, mo- you matter most to you because yeah, you yeah. love them. Right. And if they, yeah, that's the thing. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but okay. So, but to answer your question, Micah, about the, your, and the thing is, I think it's important to note that yes, the future matters, but if I have the future in mind, when I'm doing something out of love, so to speak, for Aliona, yeah. then I'm not doing it out of love. I'm wanting some kind of transactional thing, right? I think to act lovingly is is deontological. It's to do it just because you care about the person. Um, I would, I would kind of disagree with that. I don't think it needs to be a whole, wholly detached from any type of reward for yourself to to still call it love. Like I can think. You'd be in a situation where you want the best for someone, and if you have an option where it's the best, it's really good for someone, good for yourself, and also really good for someone, and there's no reward to yourself. Like I don't think love always to be purest needs to be the one that's no reward for yourself. Like I, I think about this in the sense of like a relationship with with God. Like it's mm. it's supposed to be the best for us. And that's why he does it. Like he loves right. us, um, and it's not in this whole this whole sense of just like I love you, but it's awful. You know, it's yeah. I love you because like I want what is best for you, and what's best for you is me, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that's you know what that reminds me of, like Ayn Rand's uh, altruistic egoism, right? Like it's like for the best outcomes you you need to be selfish in some sense I think it's a matter Micah Mm. if there's a Christian who only cares about God because they want to go to heaven do they love God the only thing they only only, they only accept Christianity they only care about Christianity they're only interested in Christianity just because they're afraid of hell for themselves do they love God? I would say they do not know God because I think to know God implies a love for other people. So they definitely can't love God then. 
if they don't even know God. And if they don't know God, they can't love God. Right. And they're they loving something else. No, they're loving themselves. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, just map that on to me and Aliona. Yeah. It's the same thing. If I am, you can either do something for someone because yeah. you. I think in, in a simple way, it's like. Oh, if I do this for them, then they're gonna do X, Y, Z for me. Yeah, that's not a loving action. Yeah, I well, wouldn't say. So, yeah, I think yeah, I, I would not agree with you. Um, but I would, I would say that if you do something for someone and you do it wholly for their good, but there's also a chance that this could reflect good on you, or they could help you in the future. Like just because there's that possibility, doesn't mean negate. The, the action being loving. I agree. I think it's a matter of intent. Yeah. And then sure. it, and of course, if there's something where you could help both people, that would be better. Yeah. But your intention, even in that case, is to help both of you, not to help. It, it's it, here's the difference. Yeah. You can either have a scenario where it can help both of you, and you can do it just for the fact that it helps. Or a scenario where it helps both of you and you're only interested in helping the other person because of an anticipated future reciprocity. Uh That's the bad thing. Yes, yes. So even in that instance where you could help both of you, there's an opportunity for you to be selfish or for you to be in a kind of deontologically self-sacrificial. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Yeah. The people with the best character, in my view... Which in character is a word for behavior over time. People who act in a way I would call admirably over time, reliably, they're the people who do things because just, they'll tell you just because it was right. Mm -hmm. They do things, they have a deontic outlook. Can you describe like ontological versus deontological? uh, So deontological is doing things because they're right in of themselves. So... A lot, most I think most religious people would like to think that they are like this, and many are. Uh, they go, uh, I did this because it glorifies God. And that's all, that's it. Yeah. It just glorifies God. And the, the alternative to the deontological is a consequentialism or a utilitarianism, mm-hmm. where you're doing this because uh, of the consequences. And the consequences oftentimes being um, some utility for you, presumably. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of more selfish mindset, I would say. Yeah. You could argue it's selfish in a good way, uh, but I don't think it is really most of the time. Um, if you go, I'm going to be really nice to my coworkers at work uh, because they might um, you know, help me get this promotion, but you don't actually care about them at all, you're just using them, that's yeah. a consequentialist utilitarian perspective. Well, yeah. well the, the kind of selfish egoism that I agree with Ayn Rand about. She, I don't think I actually agree with her philosophy. I agree with it in the sense that I think we are uh, evolutionarily adapted for social cooperation to some extent. And so when you can gamify that and uh, you can you can say, oh, I'm, I'm helping these people because it makes me feel good. And when you have that awareness and you can place it in uh, with, with structures, you can put these structures around your life to get the consequences that you deem are good or society might deem uh, virtuous, right? Uh, I think that's 
that's the concept of like altruism that I'm comfortable with. Right. The reason because you are cutting it at the before the intention of like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get some you know some notoriety for giving this homeless person five bucks or whatever. It is yeah. Right. The reason I don't like that mm. whole philosophy mm-hmm. strongly <laughs> is because emphasis emphasis matters yeah. in terms of your future action, and if you if your philosophy emphasizes what you gain psychologically from mm-hmm. doing something, I don't think your future actions will be as good by your own standards mm-hmm. than if your emphasis was purely on others and their benefit. I don't think you, those people, I think one person's philosophy, their beliefs will lead to better behavior than another. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can still have that understanding and act it out, right? Yeah. I don't think like, so, because if you truly, really believe and emphasize and dwell yeah. that you're only helping this person because you want to, yeah. I don't think you're going to end up helping many people. Well, yeah. No, I understand what you mean. Yeah. And are you saying belief in action or belief in thought? What? Like, are you de- uh, defining oh. belief? With- well, it's the same thing. Whereas okay, if, okay. You're, if you believe in this very me-centric philosophy, right. if you truly do, then you're, I think your behavior yes, will bear that out, and I don't think that behavior will be as good than another belief that would bear out another behavior. Yeah, but you could, I mean, uh, theoretically speaking, well, not theoretically speaking, in some ap- applicable sense, you can create structures in which uh, you can gamify these altruistic actions. What do you mean by gamify? Like gamify as in like you, the intended consequences is aligned with some tendency that you might have. So like for instance, um, I don't know if this matches on well, but uh, like I, I remember. Okay, for okay, this is another example, but I'm not sure I remember it quite well. But imagine. Uh, the statistic that uh, we we donate more when we it is evident that we reap the awards uh, like of said donation. So <clears throat> you could create structures in which uh, those donations uh, have these implicit awards, right? You can have okay. actors thinking, you know, oh, it's your, your your choice. You don't have to... It's just you get these rewards, but you're really helping people, right? It seems to me that those structures, understanding those tendencies and uh, utilizing them is better than not. Okay, yes. I agree. So, for example, you people studies have found that you're more likely to donate to charity if there is one poor starving child on the front of the postcard and if there is two or more could be two could be three every once you get to one maximum donations because we identify with individuals way more than groups of people even groups of two yeah okay so yes and it is good if these charities are good right um that they're taking advantage uh of their understanding of human psychology to get more money 
Yeah. But that's, I think that that's a good thing at an institutional level. Yeah. But at an individual person, uh, philosophy level, yeah. you don't want to be you centric. I don't think that Definitely. would make you happy. No, I don't think so either. I think we're in agreement then. Yeah, yeah. But the question is, how do you, uh, how do you align that understanding? Once the veil comes off, say you're one of the advertisers of one of these uh, philanthropic uh, organizations, right? Once the veil comes off, there they have this visceral understanding that oh, people only donate because it's one person, not because they really care. It's mm. just because of this psychological hack, rather mm. than this true understanding, this true one. How do you reconcile that? With being that person goes home and still does altruistic things on like an individual basis. Well, so that I mean that's the classic problem of is it is the person acting the way they are due to situational factors or dispositional factors? Mm. That's the question. Um, and I, th- there's usually a combination of both, and it's just ridiculously difficult to try to parse it out. Uh, it seems like maybe like because the people who are more inclined to donate be even more inclined to donate if the situational factors right. are in place. Right. So it seems to me there's some there's some overlap, but I'm with you, that is a difficult Yeah, I, I don't wanna yeah yeah. We can keep going though. I think we need to wrap it up pretty soon. Yeah. But I'm I'm still stuck on this the metaphysical implications of love. Uh-huh. And I've been thinking I don't know, it's not quite straight in my head yet, but I think I would have thought that one more difference between the person who goes through the simulation and mm. experiences the chemicals of love versus the person who is involved in the relationship yeah. is one of the things that makes love love is you desire the good for the other person, right? Mm. You want change. You want them to be better off more so than you want yourself to be better off. It's mm-hmm. pure okay. selfless love, right? Right, right. When you go through a simulation and you feel these experiences mm. and then you learn that it was a simulation and that there was no real change, no real benefit for this other person, mm. you lose that aspect. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that is a metaphysical component, but I think that is a difference from the chemicals versus the reality of the situation. No, I would agree. Well, And I think what you're saying is there was no true relation. Yeah. You have to be in relation. Yeah. Yeah, so then then you just need another person. Maybe. I don't know if you need to have a metaphysical component to that relationship yet. Or not. Well, well or not. I have this weird thing with... I remember... I So I was kind of... I was very... I mean, still am. It's philosophically naive. But <laughs> I, I remember when I, I learned... Uh, people would use the word metaphysical. And yeah. I would not know what they meant. Yeah. And I always thought they meant God or spiritual and okay and here is something fascinating because I was raised religious I had this deep appreciation uh, for a th- for theoretical levels of existence there was the mental there was the physical and there was the spiritual mm-hmm. the spiritual is a whole different plane of reality mm-hmm. and you are you really that's something that you really believe and, and you start to think in that way a lot of times yeah. when you're when you think when you're a religious person and then so I always associated metaphysical with spiritual but then I started hearing people use the word metaphysical in the same way that I was using the word abstract and those words actually I think in most instances mean the same thing 
mm. abstract and metaphysical. Okay. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but this is just in my in my experience has been mm. seems to be the most. Of course, people mean different things by it, but yeah. So. Uh, it's the wavelength, Marshall. <laughs> so, right, filtering the wavelength is the word. But uh, if if why so what gets me is is you can hold these abstract slash metaphysical truths about love being a relation. So literally, a definition of a thing right. is a metaphysical truth. Yeah. A definition is a metaphysic, um, a metaphysical object, rather, a metaphysical object. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I were to say a cup is. That's, I'm making some claim that is that overrides reality, yeah. physical reality, reality over time, and it's kind of a mental production. It's an abstract production. It's yeah. a metaphysical production, right. um, and that's why I don't think you need. Part, I mean, part of that definition uh, means for me that I don't think you need to believe in a spiritual god to hold that love is a it is something that it, it's a metaphysical object in the sense that if all humans were to die there would be no love right. it wouldn't exist mm. it's an abstract object it's a metaphysical object mm. it, it's something that's not inherent in the physical universe it's yeah. above it yeah. it's produced it emerges as a consequence of things coming together mm-hmm. it's emergent yeah it's, yeah. it's metaphysical yeah. and then and you see behaviors uh, in relationships are metaphysical things. People don't think about this enough. People are so, like, when, a lot of, like, new atheist types are very thinking about the individual and chemicals in the brain, but they when they do that, you put the individual mind in a vacuum where he's not constantly, he or she's not constantly engaging relationally and behaviorally with other minds. Behavior between two minds with their own chemical whatevers yeah. produces something new. Right, it, right. It, it, and it's almost like when you talk to people about that, it's like you're introducing them to a whole new plane of reality where things emerge from the nature of relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, that is, we are social animals. We are constantly thinking about our yeah. behavior and people's future behavior, yeah. and we're acting in a way that anticipates future behavior. Yeah. And that's the space where morality, character, love, all of these things exist. The realest things, I would say, yeah. are in, the, yeah. in the, the level of relation. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, like these emergent properties, like love, like, can that just be reduced to the two chemical experiences of the two individuals. No, it literally can't because it yeah. only happens when they're, they, they, it's kind of like they make a tapestry mm. in their relationship. And that behavioral relational tapestry forms the level of that, where love exists. It mm. forms what love is. I, I agree. I think that's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that's a pretty profound note to end. On. <laughs> that's a good. This yeah. is a good discussion. We didn't get to lecture four, but uh, uh, well, that's actually good because you didn't read it, <laughs> and Mario needs to read all six lectures or whatever by next week. Oh, well, there's going to be a quiz for him. Quiz. All right, I'll go ahead and end the podcast. This uh, has been good. Good talk, guys. <laughs>